texts is 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of the Lord lives forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. So we are walking through this first letter of John's. This is the Apostle John writing most likely to a group of house churches surrounding the city of Ephesus in the first century. And um, if you haven't picked on it, uh, up on it by now, um, you'll learn as we go on that John is not the king of subtlety. Um, like nuance is not his spiritual gift. Um, he's pretty straightforward, pretty black and white. And I think intentionally so, as we read on, that he actually, his goal is to cut through some of the nuance of life. And, and life is nuanced, of course. But he's trying to cut through some of that nuance to remind us that in the end, there are, are two fundamental trajectories that a life can take. Two, two basic allegiances that our hearts can have, either for the Father or for the world. Either a faith that is authentic or something that is something other than that. And you really feel that. I don't know if you felt it in these three short verses, but you will by the end of the, of the morning if you haven't already. Um, and what John does today, I love this, he, he goes right after the heart. He wants, to, he wants us to look inside our hearts this morning and see what's there. So I'll give you a picture of a heart. This is a little overly sentimentalized, I know, but I'll, I have a reason for using this one. Um, but he wants to go after the heart today. And there's two words that get at the heart this morning. If you look at our first verse, verse 15, he uses the word love three times. Don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in them. So he's asking the question, what is it that your heart loves? And then in verse 16, he uses, uh, my translation has lust two times. The lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes. Yours might have the desires of the flesh, the desires, or maybe the cravings of the flesh and eyes. I think cravings is actually a really good word. And it, it, it doesn't have, it's, it's a neutral word. It doesn't, it's not good or bad. It just is talking about these strong desires and these cravings. So he's getting us to think about what is it that my heart loves? What is it that my heart craves in, in my life? Our hearts, he's saying, are hungry things. They're thirsty things. They're grasping things. Um, just like our bellies that crave food, our hearts crave things like significance. We crave friendship. We crave pleasure. We crave security. We crave happiness. All these things that our hearts are these craving hungry things. And that in itself is not a bad thing. God, I think, created our hearts with desires and cravings. The question that John is posing to us this morning is where does your heart go to be filled? What, what, what cravings is it trying to to satisfy? What is it feeding on in order to satisfy those cravings? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, is where our hearts, what are they feeding on to satisfy the cravings that we have? Um, I'll keep this uh, pretty simple. John has three basic points. He's going to talk about two loves, love of the world and love of the Father. 
We'll see that in verse 15. Then he's going to talk about point two, the fundamental incompatibility of those two loves. They cannot coexist. And then three, the radically different destinies of those two loves. All right, so I want to just talk through those points and I'll leave you with a, a suggestion, a possible way to move forward. So I want to spend most of our time on this first point. John articulates two basic loves, and I want to tease these out. So on the one hand, you have the love of the Father versus the love of the world. So let's just talk about the love of the Father for a second, all right? He literally says uh, in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in them. And that, that phrase, love of Father, is a bit ambiguous in terms of what does he mean? John, what do you mean by love of the Father? Do you mean the Father's love for us, or do you mean our love for the Father? It could be either one. And as you read the rest of John, you'll realize whatever he means here, actually both uh, is what he's calling us towards. So I just want to tease this out for a second. First, he is talking about the love that the Father has for us. And 1 John has a lot to say about God's love for us. Let me give you one passage. This is the beginning of chapter 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. God has adopted us into his family. He has lavished, poured out his love on us. And last week we talked a little bit about what it means to, to live in the love of God. What does it mean to be in Christ? And remember I gave you that analogy of the young woman who worked at Disney and she had a rough life, but she was Mickey in Disneyland and she would put on her Mickey costume and she would learn what life in Mickey feels like. And she walked around in Mickey and see all these great reactions that people had to her, that that is what we are invited into is to live in Christ. And in Christ, we have all of God's love and approval and delight and affection and forgiveness and eternal life, all of that. And life is to be this growing experience and understanding of what it means to have this lavish love poured on us because we are now in Christ. So it means that, Father's love for us. And then it's also going to mean then our love for the Father. That is our response to God's love to say, I want to love you back. I want to treasure you. I want to desire you more than anything else. I want to live in such a way, to use the, the food analogy, that, that shows you just how delicious I think you really are. I want to live in such a way that shows you that I think you are the most valuable thing in the universe. You're my treasure. You're the thing I desire most. And so I want to live that way. I want to live in a way that shows others that I think you're just the most amazing thing in the world. That's what John is calling us to in this letter is that kind of love for the Father. This deepening experience of his love for us and then living a life that shows him, ah, we want to love you back. We want to love, serve you, uh, follow you. So that's the one love, love of the Father. And then the second is love of the world. And John actually spends more time talking about love of the world in this passage. So let me take a little bit more time today and tease this out for you. Uh, look at verse 15 again. Uh, do, this is a pretty strong statement. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Oh, nice. That was perfect. Whenever I make like a good point, we'll just have that pop up. You're in Mickey Mouse. You know, powerful stuff. Um, don't love the world or anything in the world. What, what does that mean? John, do I, should I not love my kids? My kids are in the world. Um, should I not love the beach? The beach is in the world. Should I not love um, 
fall football? Fall, you know, that's in the world. But like, what are you saying? And I, I think we'll see that he doesn't mean that in a blanket way. He says in his gospel, uh, for God so loved the world. So we know that God loves the world. It'd be weird for John to say, you shouldn't love something that God loves. So what do you mean by world? And I think it becomes pretty clear what he's talking about when he says, don't love the world. He means something like, don't love the ways of the world. Don't love all the things that the world tries to offer you. He's talking about worldliness, worldly priorities and values and things like that. Specifically, he's talking about three things that he goes on in verse 16 to to say. So here's what he means by not loving the world. Let's read verse 16. For everything in the world, here they are, the cravings of the flesh, the cravings of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those three things is what I mean by love of the world. So let's, I want to tease these three things out today. And um, as I do this, maybe look at your own life and go, where do I, where do I see uh, any or all of these in my heart today? So first he talks about the cravings of the flesh. And I think what he means by that is just the desire for mere sensual carnal pleasures. Okay? Just the mere desire for things like food and drink and sex. Things that are actually can be good in and of themselves, but there's some disordered craving for them and a pursuit of those things that that takes a a value in our life that shouldn't. That's the cravings of the flesh. Uh, The second one, I think this one's really interesting, the cravings of the eyes. And I think that's a pretty uh, vivid uh, image, the cravings of the eyes. It's this idea that we go around in our lives and, and we look at things in the world with our eyes and we, we see things and we say, I want what I see. I need what I see. It's having um, greedy eyes, covetous eyes, I think is what John means by that. So let me just tease this out. Like practically speaking, so maybe last night you went to a party at someone's house. And you walk into this house and your eyes see this really, really nice kitchen. Right? And it's just perfect. It's a beautiful, or, or this beautiful yard. And your eyes say, I want that kitchen. I want that yard. I want that house. And then you come home at the end of the party and you walk into your house. And all of a sudden you feel very different about your house than you did before you left. And there's this level of dissatisfaction that wasn't there three hours before. Or maybe you go down to the beach and you see someone walking by and they've just got like perfect body. And your eyes see that body and you say, I want that. I want to have a body like that body. And things start stirring inside of you. And then you go home and you find yourself online like, what are the 10 best ways to lose weight? You know, and you're something stirring in you, right? Or maybe you see that body, you say, I I want my spouse to have that body. (laughs) And and that's a whole nother nother issue and, and stirring that takes place inside of you, right? It's our eyes seeing things and saying, I want that. You're on your feed. You're looking at Instagram photos and you see they're your friends and they're all together somewhere. And your eyes see that. You say, oh, I want to be there. I wanted, I wanted that. And that stirs things in you. Or you go to someone's home and you see their newest toys or their newest, you know, edition of whatever. And, and your eyes see it and you're like, yeah, I want that. It is, it is looking around and saying, I want, I want, I want more, more, more. And I, yes, I want these things. My eyes crave these things. Um, like a month ago, I, I was in the, I think it was in the family room with our kids. And my kids were singing a song. And the chorus goes like this. Um, I want something that I want. Something I tell myself I need. And I need everything I see. <laughs> and, and I, I thought, oh. Is that what that's to go? Let's, girls, should we, maybe we should, let's talk about this. Um, 
And, there, and it's catchy. Like, it's, it's, it's awesome. I'm, I'm singing it now. It's going on in my head all the time. Um, I think the song actually comes around at the end to say that's not what life's all about. But the chorus is that. And that's, what's, that's what everyone's singing. I thought that is perfect. That's the cravings of the eyes. The cravings of the flesh, the cravings of the eyes. And the last one, my translation says the pride of life. Yours might say pride in possessions or pride in what we have and do. I think it's talking about basically what we accumulate or what we accomplish in this life. There's a, there's a pride in that. So if the lust of the eyes is seeing things that we don't have and deeply desiring them, the pride of life is looking at the things we do have and saying these things make me feel okay about who I am, right? Like if I can accumulate a, a set of, of possessions that are of a certain quality or a certain quantity, you know, a portfolio of a certain amount or a, a house in a, in a certain neighborhood or a certain set of toys or a certain set of clothes or you, you name it, right? All these possessions that this gives me a sense of like, yeah, I've, I've made it. I've arrived uh, in this culture. I'm, I'm doing it. Or if you can accomplish a certain set of things, if you can reach a certain com- uh, you know, position in a company, right? Or, or your kids can, can make it to a certain college. Um, or you can accomplish a certain set of things that hurt, have a certain level of status in the community that you, you look at all of that and, and you go, yeah, that, that is what gives me a sense of legitimacy. And John calls it pride, but we would think of it more like this. I, I feel good about me because these things are, are in my life. I, I'm legit. I'm, I'm the real deal. You know, whatever, however you want to say that. Um, last Sunday, I'll give you a great example. I had uh, one of you in this room right now who's a friend um, text me after the, after the service and said, um, what kind of shoes were you wearing uh, today? And, and he was doing that because he, he was wanting to know what the brand was so he may, maybe could buy it. And we had this great email banter. And, and I said, that I basically said to myself, that text makes me feel good about me. Because I've never had anyone ever ask me what brand (laughs) of clothes you are wearing. I've actually outsourced all of my fashion decisions to close friends um, because I cannot be trusted with those kinds of decisions. It's like, I feel good about me, right? First time in my life. It's great. But it's, it's looking at what we accomplish, what we accumulate, and going, yeah, this is what makes me feel okay about me. And to, to live that way almost always is to enter into some level of a comparison game. Because it's almost always you're looking at this in comparison, right, to the person next to me. You're, it's it almost always is about how do I measure up? Where do I stack up in this, you know, strata of, of human beings? And so almost as always this comparison game. All right, so that is to sum up the love of the world. It is cravings for what the world has to offer. Pleasure, power, money, sex, status, and then the pride that we feel when we, when we gain those things or accomplish those things. And just before I leave this love of the world, let me just say one other or two other things. First, I just want to be clear, John is not saying here that money is a bad thing, that possessions are a bad thing, that positions of power are a bad thing, that a good reputation, that a good status is a bad thing at all. He's not saying that. It is the cravings for those things 
that get us into trouble. It's the craving and then what those cravings lead us to do in life and the pursuits we engage in because of the craving. So just that's an important distinction. And then the other thing I thought would be helpful to say is, is that love for the world can take on so many different versions in this life. So like there are versions of love for the world that are um, very, very like base and kind of lowbrow, if I can use that phrase. So like, like the person who um, goes to strip clubs every weekend and gets drunk on cheap beer, you know, something like that, like a very kind of base carnal version. But that it can also take these very cultured and refined versions, right? Like the person who has the million dollar wine collection and the antique car in their garage, right? These are two very different lives, but those could be two, potentially two versions of a love of what the world has to offer. And then the other distinction I think would be to recognize there are secular versions of this and there are religious versions of this. So we could create some secular stereotype, some young professional, right, in Wall Street, let's say, who's like, I, I want everything this world has to offer, and they're, they're working 90 hours a week. They're trying to climb the company ladder, make as much money as they can. They're partying and hooking up with people on the weekends. It's a very, just a very secularized version of love for the world. But I think it's important in a room, uh, in a church like this, to acknowledge that love for the world can also dress up in very religious clothes, if I can put it that way, you know? And in the New Testament, the Pharisees are this great example of these men who, who were very religious and who actually loved the world. And we don't normally think of them in those terms, but they had a deep love for the world that was dressed up in religious clothes. I was thinking of some of the things that are said about them in, in the Gospels. Um, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is talking about money and just warning people about the dangers of craving money. And Luke ends that parable or that story by saying this, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. But behind all that religious garb, they they loved the wealth of this world. Um, They also loved status and reputation. Here's a really convicting one. Jesus says this to the Pharisees, you don't have the love of God in your hearts. You've got all this religion, but you don't have the love of God in your hearts. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? You guys are caught up in that comparison game. You're just trying to gain praise and approval and, and worried about your status with one another. That's what you guys care about. You don't care about what God thinks of you. Those are pretty strong words. Um, so all that to say... These two loves, love of the Father and love of the world. That's what I wanted us just to sit with this morning. And John has two other points to make, and I'll be brief about them. So he articulates these two loves. And then second, and this is the real maybe gut puncher, if I can put it this way. He, he argues about the fundamental incompatibility of both of these loves. Look at verse 15 again. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Okay? He's saying love of the world pushes out the love of the Father. If you love the world, you don't have love for And vice versa. He doesn't say this, but I think vice versa. If, If you truly love the Father, that pushes out the love of the world. They can't coexist. Again, back to the human heart. The human heart is a hungry, craving thing, but it is only so large. And it's going to fill itself with one or the other. 
the world or, or the Father, but they, it can't fill itself with both. It can't do it in a way um, that works well, at least, if I can put it that way. And I just wanted to say this morning, to that point that these are fundamentally incompatible, that I think that idea is the idea that we resist the most. That is the idea that we don't want to believe is true, right? And again, it's not money possessions themselves. It's the craving for those things and the craving for the Father. But I think we live our lives basically saying, I don't believe you, John. I I actually think they can coexist. And we strategize and we scheme for ways that we can make these coexist in our lives. And we think, I'm going to be the first person in the history of the world who makes this work really well. Because we want to have our cake and eat it too, right? I mean, that is so natural. But we don't, we don't want to believe that this is true. And we actually don't believe that it's true most of the time. And I'm not going to try to argue the reasons why that may be true this morning. But I thought I would just offer the fact that the, the consistent witness of the New Testament across the board is these two things are incompatible. These th- two things can't coexist. And just to lay that clear witness of Scripture before us, and then we get to decide what we do with that, each one of us. Let me just show you a couple places where this is so consistently taught in the New, New Testament. James says that James also, not the king of subtlety, in case you haven't read James for a while. Uh, you adulterous people, thanks, James. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Jesus himself famously puts it this way. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. We're like, sure we can. He's like, you can't do it. You can't do it well. Um, Or the one I already quoted. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? If you're not seeking God's praise, how can you possibly believe if you're just concerned about what everyone else thinks about. You can't, those, those can't coexist. And practically speaking, I think here's what happens. I'm speaking personally. We, we think, I actually, I think they kind of can. John, I think I can pull this off. And I'm going to try really hard to pull this off. And we think we're kind of doing it. But what, what happens is that our love and passion for God becomes this weak and flimsy and lukewarm sort of thing, but we don't really realize it because it's happening everyone around us, and so we're looking pretty good by the comparison game, right? And that's kind of what happens. But I think that's what Jesus says will happen. Jesus tells this parable of the of the soil, right? The parable of the sower, this guy who sows seeds, and what happens in the different soils, and and he talks about this third soil where. A farmer sowed seed and, and this plant grew up, this plant of faith. But then there are all these weeds uh, and thistles that, that came up and choked it out. And he says this, and the seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear the word, uh, maybe embrace it. Uh, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. Pretty similar to the three things John says here. Life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they don't mature. This faith that has started, the, word, the, the image he gives is it's choked. It doesn't have room to fully breathe and mature because there's all these other things vying in the heart. Or today, I, instead of using choked, the analogy of, of the heart being hungry, I'd say the heart is stuffed. It's already stuffed full of other things, and there's just not a lot of room to put something else 
in there. I love this. Um, this is John Piper talking about that idea. The weakness of our hunger for God is not because he's unsavory, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. If you don't feel strong desires for God, it, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. And I, I do think that that resonates with oftentimes our experience. I, I, I want to have this passion for God, but I, I don't. I don't have this passion for I don't have this hunger for his word. I don't really have this deep desire for other people to know him. I, I kind of did, but I'm just stuffed. <laughs> There's so many other things that it's this part of my life, but it is not the center of my life. So all that to say, John says these two loves are incompatible. And, um, and then he turns up the heat one more level <laughs> in his third point and says not only are they incompatible, but they have radically different destinies, these two loves. Look at uh, verse 17. The world and its cravings pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is the image I've been showing you the last couple weeks. This is John's image of the time we're living in. Christ, the son, has come. A new kingdom has dawned. We're living at the dawn of a new day. The night is still kind of here, but a day is coming. It's God's kingdom, and the night is passing, and one day it will pass when Christ returns. And John is reminding us that the world and its cravings is part of that night that's passing away. It's not going to stand the test of day. And God and his kingdom and the desires for his kingdom are the things that are going to live forever. So choose the Lord. It's, it's such a better investment. <laughs> the world is such a short term, such a near-sighted investment. But it's going to pass away. And all those cravings that you have for worldly things, and you can think of what those are for you, all those cravings, they will not stand at the day of Christ. They will not go with you into eternity. None of those cravings will be there in eternity. They will be stripped from you. So why invest in those? And John would say, if your fundamental allegiance is towards the world, you will pass away when the world passes away. Conversely, God's kingdom is coming. It is here and yet is not yet here, but it is going to go on forever. And he says, the person who does the will of God lives forever. He's not, he's not looking for perfection, but he's talking about a trajectory, that your fundamental allegiance, that your life would be pointed towards, your affections would fundamentally be pointed towards God and who he is and what he is up to in the world. You want to be a part of that kingdom. That's the, that's, that's the only sure bet, John is saying. All right, so there it is. I warned you, not the king of subtlety, right? Two loves, love of God, love of the world, fundamentally incompatible, radically different destinations for these two kinds of loves. So I want to take you back to your heart. And I think a, a passage like this that is hard hitting, I think is intended to have us kind of hold our heart in our own hands and, and shepherd our hearts and also offer them to the Lord. Say, gosh, Lord, here's what I see. Here's, this is just the reality of me. And I want to offer that to you today so that you would do a fresh work in it. And I want to leave you with just two uh, 
historic Christian postures that we can take with our hearts, two Christian practices that help us offer our hearts to God, all right? They're the postures of, feast, of fasting and feasting. And I just want to tease these out and leave you with these two postures to consider today. Um, the first one is, is fasting. And I'm not necessarily thinking of fasting from food, but to ask yourself the question, uh, where have I been going to the world to satisfy my cravings? Where have I been nibbling at the table of the world for far too long? And I would encourage you right now to be, as you're hearing what John says, to be going, where, what are, what are those, those unhealthy attachments that my heart has to certain things in this world? And it might be towards a certain thing like your reputation or towards a certain possession that you have. It could be just about anything. But maybe God stirs something in you like, yeah, this, this thing has, it has a grip on my heart. And then what would it mean to offer God a fast from that thing for a time? It might be for a week. It might be for a month. To say, I want to disconnect my heart's attachment to this thing. And I'm going to do something. I'm going to offer a fast. I'm going to withhold from this thing, whatever that thing is. I'm going to offer a fast for the Lord that he might free my heart from an unhealthy attachment to that. And I can't tell you what, you know, what that fast would look like, right? It would be unique to all of us. I can tell you there's two kinds of fasts. There are voluntary fasts where you identify something in your life and you say, I want to actively choose to fast from that, and you offer that to the Lord. Uh, and then there's involuntary fasts where God just takes something from you that you didn't want him to take from you. Like maybe you care about financial security and he's like, I'm going to take that from you for a time. And you're going through this really hard financial crisis, let's say. Or there's some possession that you wanted and he just takes it away. You didn't choose it and yet you're having to fast. And I just want to say both of those kinds of fasts can be really fruitful. It really doesn't matter which one it is. If you offer that to the Lord, Lord, do your work in my heart um, that I might be freed from my heart's craving for this thing. So maybe there's a fast for you uh, in this season of your life. And then finally, I'll leave you with the other Christian posture. It is the posture of feasting, fasting and feasting. The one here being, God, how can I feast on the goodness of God? How can I taste and see that the Lord is good. We sang that earlier. How can, I, how can I fill my heart with your goodness, your beauty, and your truth every day? Um, there's this classic booklet. I want to I leave you with a quote. This little booklet by a guy named Thomas Chalmers. And he wrote a book that, and this is the title of the book, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Um, wow, right? I saw that title, I'm like, I've got to read, I've got to read anything called the expulsive power of a new affection. Um, the, the power that a new craving has to expel an old craving, to push out an old craving. So here's what he says. The human heart has such a grasping tendency that it must have something to lay hold of. And if that something is taken away without the substitution of another something in its place, it will leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the body. The heart is such that the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our hearts than to keep in our hearts the love of God. 
And so we're called to feast daily on the goodness of God, on a new affection that casts out an old affection. Okay, if you love money, one of the most unhelpful things to do is wake up every day and say, don't love money, don't love money, don't love money, don't love money. Right? You have to find something that is more valuable to you than money, and you have to go after that thing. Right? If you really care about people's approval, right? Don't care about their approval, don't care about... That's not a very effective way. You have to find someone whose approval matters to you more than people. And you have to start seeking to please that person. And so I think that's, that, that is the primary task of our lives. <laughs> the primary task is how can I consistently feed and feast on the goodness, the truth, and the beauty of God so that I step into the world and I go, actually, I'm, I'm already full. Like, I'm good. I, I hear what you're selling. I, I don't really need it. I'm, I'm already full. That is, that is the, the, the business of our lives is to do that. And so I, I leave you with that question. What would, it, what would it mean for you to feast on the goodness of the Lord in this season? It may be his word. You're like, I've got to just get in to the bread of life. You know, his, his word that is food for the journey. I want to do that more regularly. Maybe it's being out in God's creation, and that is such a great way for you to feast on his goodness. Maybe it's music, taking in these, these worship songs in your car is a way for you just to, to taste and see that he's good. Maybe it's serving. For some of you, when you actually get out and start loving people, that's the way that you, you feast on God's goodness. What is it for you? We're invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, would you please, uh, this week, remind us of your goodness, remind us of your beauty, remind us of your truth, and um, sometimes those feel so dim and distant in the midst of our daily lives. And so we need your spirit to, to open the eyes of our hearts again to, to how good you are, to, to what a meal you offer us in yourself. Help us to take in that meal again. Give us real tangible ways to pursue you and to long for you and to take you in, that we might be full, that we might be able to go out into the world and be freed from all it's selling us and just freed to love people from that place of fullness. We know we'll never get there perfectly in this life, but would you move in us even this week uh, to set us more firmly on that journey? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.